1940, the United States of America instituted its first peacetime draft. World War II was raging, and the government knew there was only a, it was only a matter of time until the U.S. was going to enter the war. So they, in, so they started a peacetime draft. They started ramping up production. They started ramping up their military forces, knowing that when it came time, it was going to be a difficult battle. Throughout the, the war, an estimated 10 million men were drafted. It's a crazy big number. Think about that. 10 million. It's around 5 million living in Arizona. 5 million people altogether. 10 million men drafted into war. An estimated 407,000 of those men would die. Once again, it's a huge number. That's almost four times the size of Flagstaff, metro, including the metropolitan area of Flagstaff, Doney Park, Kachina Village. It's a huge number. Those men served and they died for a cause that was greater than them. They were called they knew the enemy. They knew what the enemy's intentions were to conquer the world, to wipe out entire races. They knew that there was almost certain death for some of them as they went to serve. And they even knew that some of the enemy didn't even want to be there. I remember my grandpa, who was drafted, he served in Okinawa, and I remember him telling me, I remember looking at the eyes of the Japanese soldiers, and I realized they didn't want to be there as much as I didn't want to be there. And yet, there they were, fighting a battle. They had been called, they knew the dangers, they knew the risk, but they also knew what would happen if they did not answer the call. And so, they, caught, they answered the call. There is another call and there is another risk. It's not quite the same, but it is a dangerous enemy. An enemy that wants you to believe that God doesn't love you. An enemy that wants you to believe that His grace is not real. And there is another call, and that is to Christians everywhere. To fight for the faith. Now the fight's not going to look the same. But it is just as important of a fight. That's what Jude's going to get into for us today as we turn to Jude. I know last week we had Jude in our bulletin and we had Jude. Uh, that was the plan. And then we decided, hey, we're going to read through Peter because reading through Second Peter was important enough. So we, we postponed Jude. Jude is a short book. It's one, a short letter, I should say. It's only one chapter. 
We're going to take a little bit of time. We're going to take three weeks, and we'll walk through Jude, and then we're going to read through Jude. We'll do an overview to read through. So today we're going to look at an introduction to Jude. His introduction. Next week, we'll look at the body. And then the following week, we'll look at the conclusion. Three weeks, it's super easy. You know, I hope, if anything, I have been encouraging you to sit down and read an entire book at once. I know sometimes that feels daunting, but we experienced it last week. Actually, Brent Johnston timed me, and we read it in eight minutes last week. That's how long it took us to read the entire book of Second Peter. Jude's much shorter. Some of you could probably read Jude in less than a minute. Some of us are slow readers. It might take some of us five minutes. Uh, but, but either way, I would highly encourage you, just as we walk through the next three weeks, read through Jude as often as you can. It's, it's very short. So, we'll open up to Jude, starting in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for the condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to get into today. Let's dig in. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. So we've got three sections here that we need to dig into. The first is the introduction to the writer. The next will be the introduction to the audience, followed by a prayer for the audience, and then an introduction to the topic. That's all we're going to study today. There's a lot going on with it. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now this is interesting because he has to give himself a disclaimer, or he has to give himself a title. He has to give himself a, a descriptor so that people can identify him. There were several Judes living in that day. And so Jude needs to distinguish himself from the other Judes. And it's interesting how he does it. So he calls himself a servant, we'll get into that in a second, of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now notice he doesn't have to give a description of James. James was well enough known that everyone would know who Jude is by his brother James. Alright, so that gives us some clues of who this Jude is. We find in Mark 6.3 that James and Jude were both brothers of Jesus. This is Jude, the brother of James. James, the brother of Jesus, becomes the head of the church of Jerusalem. So we can kind of pull from these facts that it is most likely Jude, the brother of James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. If you're following me logically here, that makes Jude the half-brother of Jesus. All right, that's interesting though, isn't it? Because notice he doesn't say Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't appeal to his relational authority, right? There are some people that want to appeal to some kind of relational authority. Like, you need to listen to me because I have connections. That's not what Jude is doing here. He very easily could have. If someone could have appealed to a, a authority based on relationship, I think Jude could. James could as well. But he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He calls himself a servant 
of Jesus Christ. Now, this term servant, I think, is a, uh, I think it's a poor translation. The term in the Greek is doulos, and it really means slave. But even that, because of our, our views of slaves, even that kind of loses its, its real meaning. It, you might use the term bond slave. So when we think of slave, we usually think of forced slavery, someone who was captured, forced into slavery, or born into slavery, and forced into it and treated poorly. But that wasn't quite what a doulos was. A doulos was someone who sold themselves into slavery. Now, why would someone sell themselves into slavery? There are several different reasons. Maybe they were on the brink of starvation, and their family needed some money, so they would sell themselves into slavery, so that way their family could, could be fed. But they were treated pretty well, and in fact, most of them were paid, and eventually they could earn enough money to buy their freedom again. But there's two important facts that we need to get from this term that, that Jude is calling himself. One is, he no longer called the shots in his life. You see, when we read the term servant, we think, oh, that's great, he serves and then he goes home. It's a job. Kind of like us being employed. You know, you go and you, you're employed, and, and your employer might call the shots while you're, on, while you're there, but you can quit at any time. And when you go home, you call the shots for yourself. I'm going to have mac and cheese for dinner tonight and go to bed at 10.30. It's the way I would live if my kids had their way. But that's not what a doulos was. It wasn't someone who was employed. The doulos no longer called the shots of their life. Their master did. They couldn't just quit. Their master was the one that was going to call the shots. It's important for us to recognize. What Jude is saying about himself here is that he's no longer calling the shots in his life. Jesus is the one calling the shots. He's no longer the one in control. It is his master that now controls him. But the second point that we need to grab from this is that he willingly opted in. He wasn't forced in. It wasn't that he was captured. It wasn't that he was born into it. In fact, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jude rejected Jesus. Jude wasn't a believer of Jesus. He wasn't born into this. But after the resurrection, Jude became a believer. And when he became a believer, he said, I'm no longer the one that's going to call the shots. I am willingly subjecting myself to Jesus and willingly letting him call the shots for my life. I think it's a good example for us. We should no longer be the ones wanting to call the shots in our life. We should be willingly subjecting ourselves to our Master, our Creator, Jesus. We could call ourselves a doulos, a slave of Jesus. I think oftentimes we look at Jesus and we think about how he can benefit us. The theological term for this is called the moral therapeutic deist. Moralistic therapeutic 
So we look at Jesus and we like Jesus. We like what Jesus offers. And we think, man, if, if, if I follow Jesus, he could make me a pretty moral guy. And really, a lot of parents come around because we want moral children, right? Like, I've never heard a, a parent that was like, man, I just hope my kid grows up to be a mass murderer. No parent wants that. Parents want moral children. So let's bring them to church so they can be moral. But then we look at Jesus and we're like, you know, I also, I need, I need some therapy, Jesus. I'm kind of this jacked up person. Can you be my personal counselor? And just make me feel good about my life. And as a result, we, we look at Jesus as, as how we can use Jesus, and we start to give what, what one of my mentor pastors said, uh, small yeses. We don't give Jesus the big yes. So we say, Jesus, you know, I'll, I'll do some things for you if you can just make my life better. You know, Jesus, I'll go serve in Awana and I'll listen to Bible verses once every week for an hour if that means my kids will behave. And we give all these small yeses. And the problem with the small yeses is oftentimes they cheat us out of the big yes. The big yes is saying, Jesus, I want you to call the shots in my life from here on out. I never want to be the one that's, that's controlling my life again. Jesus, I want you. I totally submit everything to you. I lay everything down to you. And I trust you with my life in its entirety. That's the big yes. It's looking at Jesus and no longer saying, Jesus, how can you make me feel more moral? How can you make me feel better about my life? It's instead saying, Jesus, how can I serve you? That's the big yes. So Jude is given the big yes. And it's he's an example for us to also give the big yes. To no longer hold things back from Jesus. To no longer say, Jesus, I'll serve you in some areas, but there's other areas I don't want you to touch. There's areas of my life that I never want you to speak in. Instead, we can give it all to him. So that's Jude. And then he gives us the audience. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This term called is kletos, and it, it means to be called or to be summoned, but Jude is a Jew writing to a Jewish audience. So the time period, we're not entirely sure of the time period, but we know what was happening. He's still in Jerusalem, and what's happened is the Jews in Jer or the Christians in Jerusalem have been fleeing because of persecution. I often think of it as uh, when I was in college, uh, somebody brought in some moonshine, and we were all kind of foolish college students, and we decided that we were going to taste this moonshine, and every single one of us spit it right back out the second it hit our lips because it just tasted so horrible. But then somebody was like, you know, we're not sure what the alcohol content of that is, but I, I've heard that if you light it on fire, it's like over 90% alcohol. And we were like, wow, that sounds like a great idea. Let's find out what happens. Did I mention we were foolish college students? College students, don't be so foolish, all right? Don't, don't take my example. So anyways, we put it, we're in the dorms. We didn't even leave the dorm room. We're like, man, I just look back at myself. And I'm like, what were you thinking, Aaron? So, so we poured it out onto a countertop in the dorm room, 
And somebody took the lighter and lit it up. And it lit. And someone else got really scared because it's, it's on fire in our dorm room now. I think it was his dorm room and he didn't want to get in trouble. So he slapped it to put it out. And what happened? Fireballs everywhere. Now instead of one big fire, there were a ton of small fires going on everywhere. And when I think about the persecution that happened in Jerusalem, that's what I think of. Because what happened was there was this huge awakening towards Jesus, right? There was this, everybody was joining the church. The, the gospel was spreading. Everyone was falling in love with Jesus. And what did the, the, Jew, the religious leaders do? They slapped that fire. And all those Christians that, that were there started to spread. And what did they do? They just spread the fire. That's the way God used persecution to spread the gospel, was through persecution. I think it's good for us to think about right now as we think about what our future looks like in this country. Now, Jude and James and some of the others, they stayed. They stayed and they continued to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. Others left and they continued to preach the gospel wherever they went. God had an assignment. He had commissioned them. This word kletos means not just summoned, but summoned and commissioned. That's, that's more of the Jewish bent on this Greek word. Both summoned, called, and commissioned. God had summoned, He had called them both. He had called Jude, He had an assignment for Jude, and He had an assignment for Jude's audience that had left Jerusalem. When we think about the future, not just in our country, but in your own places of work. Some of you are working for companies that are starting to go directly against God. Some of you in those companies will be called to go. God's going to say, enough's enough. It's time to leave. And that's what you've been called to do. And you take the gospel wherever God has called you to a new place. Some of you are going to be called to stay. And it's going to be a difficult fight. James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the letter from James, tradition has it that he was thrown off the temple. I should say the temple mount. It's a difficult fight. But God is going to call some of you to stay. Begin to pray on what God has commissioned you to do. To stay or to go. Both are what God has called for individuals. And we can't judge one another for what happens. Jude isn't writing to them saying, Hey, you guys, you left me in Jerusalem. What's the deal? I'm so mad at you right now. No. He's writing them to encourage them. So those, to those who are called, who are summoned and commissioned, we each have an assignment. The church overall has a global assignment. And every church has basically the same assignment. Almost every church has basically the same purpose statement. If they uh, have a normal reading of Scripture, that is that all would come to know Christ and grow in Christ. That's ours. That's how we phrase it. But just about every church phrases it a little bit differently. 
But that's it. That's what God has given us. Back in Matthew 28, what does he do? He says, go make disciples of all nations. We're to, we're to go out and spread the gospel. That's what the overall assignment of the church is. Within the church, each person has their individual assignments. God has an assignment for you. In this church, some of you are visitors. Some of you are getting ready to go. Wherever you go, whatever new church you end up at, God has an assignment for you. So, to those who are called, who are summoned and commissioned, and then he gives a couple descriptors of what these people are, the, the called. They are beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. This beloved here in God the Father is a perfect passive. I love the way one commentator put it. He wrote, uh, are in his love and are permanent objects of his love. That's what the perfect passive describes. That God, that you are in God's love and that you are permanent objects of God's love. Think about that for a second. That, that God has lavished his love upon you and that you are permanent, meaning you will never be taken away from it. Objects of his love. He's always going to love you. There is nothing you can do to wreck that. There's no way you can make God remove his love from you. You are a permanent object of his love. So beloved in God the Father, a permanent object of his love, and kept for Jesus Christ. The, the word kept here is guard, or guarded, and it's in the dative of agency, which brings about a little bit of debate among theologians. Some would argue that it's and kept by Jesus Christ. Some of your translations read that. Some of your translations read kept for Jesus Christ. The reason why that debate is there is because it's a dative of agency, which is a little bit tricky to translate. I think what's really going on here is Jude's using a little bit of wordplay. And what he's really saying is that you are kept by Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ. Meaning, he's guarding you, he's the one doing it, and he's guarding you for himself. It makes me think of this Corvette owner I used to know. Actually, I still know him, but he doesn't own a Corvette anymore. He used to own a Corvette. But uh, he loved that Corvette. He kept that Corvette. He, he polished that Corvette. He cleaned that Corvette. He took really good care of that Corvette. And he was one of those guys, you know, when you went to the grocery store, you'd see the person that parked like three miles out in the parking lot so that no one would accidentally ding him with the car. Or he was one of those guys. He kept that Corvette. He guarded that Corvette. He protected that Corvette. Now, who did he keep that for? Was it for me? No, it wasn't for me. He could care less if I ever saw his Corvette. He kept it for himself. Because he loved that Corvette. So he protected it so that he could look at what he thought was this glorious vehicle. That's the way Jesus is with you. Except for times that by infinity and you still only have a glimpse of what his love for you was like. So you are the object of his love and then he keeps you. He, he guards you for himself for his, because he loves you so much that one day he will present you to himself as this object that he has guarded. So that's the audience. And then he gives this short prayer for them. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. 
Now this prayer, this multiply, is he's praying that these things would be multiplied, that you would increasingly get more and more of these things. Mercy, peace, and love. Meaning you would be the object and you would continually feel that you are the object of His love. Peace, meaning that you would continuously have the peace, have this harmonious relationship with God. And mercy. Mercy is compassion toward an offender. Someone who has caused an offense. Having compassion towards that person who has caused an offense. I think this is a really important thing that we constantly overlook. I don't think there's enough mercy in our world. We don't offer enough mercy towards others. In fact, oftentimes when someone causes an offense, we either A, ignore the offense. Well, that's not being merciful, is it? We don't, we don't actually acknowledge that we had an offense. Or we B, and I think more often we go towards the B, we just get mad and shake our fist at the person. There's no compassion towards that offender. I think that's one of the reasons why our political scene is the way it is right now. There's no compassion. There's no mercy. There's just a lot of angry people shaking their fists at each other. What's interesting in this list, mercy, peace, and love, is actually what's missing, I think, from the list. Typically, in a New Testament letter, it's grace that is being prayed for someone. But Jude changes that with mercy. That God would have compassion on us as offenders. Well, first of all, we have to recognize that we are offenders towards God. We have offended God. In our rebellion, in our behavior, at some point in your life, you have made an offense towards God. It's important to recognize that. But why does he replace mercy or grace with mercy? Well, both Jude and Second Jude, or sorry, both Second Peter and Jude are writing to address a very similar heresy. Peter emphasizes grace. So the heresy that's happening is people have twisted God's grace to make an excuse to do whatever you want. Peter's solution, which is an important aspect that we studied, is you stand in grace. When people twist grace, you stand in grace. You correctly identify grace, and you continue to stand in God's grace. I think one of Jude's major solutions is God's mercy. People are twisting God's grace. We need to remember God's mercy. That we are offenders, and yet He has compassion towards us as offenders. As people twist God's grace, we need to be reminded of God's mercy. This is going to be a theme that we'll look at throughout the next three weeks. So mercy, peace, and love. Compassion towards offenders. Recognizing that we are the offenders, and God's mercy, His compassion, is being multiplied to us. That's his prayer. And then he gets into the introduction of the letter, letting us know why he's writing. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he starts writing this letter, and he wants to write 
about this common salvation. The term salvation in the Bible is, is a reference to God's redemptive acts. So ever since the fall of man, ever since Adam and Eve, ever since the first sin where humanity began shaking our fists at God in rebellion, there has been corruption. There has been corruption in this earth. And so we see the brokenness. We see the brokenness throughout this world. We see the brokenness, not just emotional brokenness, but physical emotion or brokenness as well, right? So God's salvation is God's redemptive acts emotionally, spiritually, physically. So you'll see salvation sometimes reference just a physical salvation, that God is redeeming something physically. But here the term common salvation is a reference to the spiritual act of God's major redemptive act of dying on the cross for our sins. Recognizing that we were offenders, that that we shook our fists at God, that because of that there is brokenness in the world, and God paid the price for our brokenness. Because of His mercy, because of His love, He came to this earth, and He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose again. That's the redemptive act that he's emphasizing right here. And I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of God's redemptive act. It's important for us to remind ourselves of who we could be if God was not in the process of redeeming us. I remember and I reflect on who I was before I came to submit my life to Christ. And I was a selfish jerk. I wasn't fun to be around. I didn't even really like being around me. But God is in the process of growing me. He has redeemed me. Now He's growing me. And every day I become less and less of a selfish jerk. It's important for me to remind myself of God's work in my life. Otherwise, I begin to think it's me. I begin to think that I'm just that good. If you're not reminding yourself of what God is doing in your life, you will begin to think it's you. You will begin to think that you're just that good. And you'll become arrogant. And eventually, you'll think you won't even need God. We have to remind ourselves repeatedly of God's redemptive act in our life. So he was going to write this because it's an important thing. But then he switched, and this is the Holy Spirit throwing a curveball. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now this term, term uh, appealing is uh, officer challenging troops. It's actually a military term of an officer challenging the troops before a battle. So he's saying, I, I had to switch things up and there is a battle out here and I need to write to you before the battle occurs to spur you on, to help you recognize who the, the enemy is and how we best take on the enemy. And I want to encourage you because this is a fight, not just for our lives, but for very souls of this world. It's an important battle. And so he's right, he switches it up. He goes from, from we need to remind ourselves of God's redemption act to we need to remind ourselves that we're in a fight, we're in a battle, and we need to recognize that. So he's writing to appeal to you to contend for the faith. This term contend means to agonize for or to fight for. I think about when I was in wrestling 
It was only two minute long periods, three periods for two minutes long each. And I remember, guys, uh, 30 seconds left in the third period. You're worn out. You've been fighting with this other guy as hard as you could. You've only got 30 seconds left. You're down by a point. And you just reach in and you find another place in you that you didn't even know you had so that you might be able to muster out a win. Oftentimes I'd lose anyways. But that didn't mean I wasn't agonizing for the win. I was fighting with everything I had for the win. And that's this word here, to agonize, to fight with everything you have for the faith. Faith simply means belief or trust, but when you put that definite article in front of faith, it means it's a reference to the Gospel. It's a reference to our Christian doctrine. For the faith. We need to agonize. We need to fight. We can't let people come in and twist the faith. We can't let people divide the church. We need to agonize for it. That was once for all delivered to the saints. Meaning that this faith was given to us. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. This term, crept in unnoticed, means like sneak in the back door. Some of your translations might even say that. And in, in the time of Jude, that's what was literally happening. People were sneaking in, and and the reference that he's trying to get at is like, there's these spies that are coming in, and because they're spies, they've been studying us, and they walk like us, and they talk like us, and they use Christianese, and they make you want to think that they are good Christians. In our day and age, they don't necessarily have to sneak in. Some still do sneak in. They come into a church, into a congregation, And their whole purpose for coming into a congregation is to divide and conquer. But that's not how all of these people attack in our day. In our day, we see it much more through social media, podcasts, Instagram influencers. People who want to take and twist the faith all for their own benefit, and for the destruction of the church. So these people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. This is simply meaning that God designed this punishment long ago. So I think of it like this. uh, There are speed limit signs all over. And if I choose to ignore a speed limit sign and go 20 miles per hour over, and a cop catches me, there is a designated punishment for going 20 miles over the speed limit. That's kind of what he's saying here, is that there is a designated punishment for those who have chosen to go against God. For those who have chosen to rebel against God, there is already a designated punishment. That's what he's getting at. So these are ungodly people, people who are rebelling against God, shaking their fist against God, who don't want to submit their lives to God, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. This term pervert means to exchange. So they've taken the grace of God and they're exchanging it for sensuality. Sensuality means like moral abandon, particular emphasis on sexual moral abandon. And when we hear that, when we hear that people have taken God's grace 
that He has lavished upon us, and they're exchanging that, or they're twisting that to, to uh, sensuality or sexual moral abandon, there's a few letters that pop up in most of our heads. A few letters with a plus sign at the end. And it is easy for us to see that. It is easy for us to see how there are certain people that say, God will love me no matter what, therefore I should just twist everything in Scripture around to justify my letter with my plus sign at the end. By the way, the plus sign at the end really emphasizes that moral abandon, right? When you have moral abandon, you say, there is nothing that is over me. There is nothing that I need to subject myself to. There is nothing that I need to submit myself to. No moral authority. So anything flies when there's no moral authority. So when you get the plus sign at the end, that shows that the letters that you see in front of it aren't the end. The letters you see in front of it are just the beginning. The plus sign means that there is an infinite amount of sensuality to be grasped at. And it's easy for us to look in our culture today and see this very clearly. It's a little bit more difficult because it's a little bit more painful is to look at our own hearts. To ask the question, do I pervert the grace of God for my own sensuality? When I'm alone, with the internet, in secret, when no one's looking, where does my heart run to? Where does my heart go? Am I truly giving God the big yes when it comes to my sexuality? Or am I just twisting things enough to make myself feel better, to make myself feel more moral? But in the end, I'm still the one that wants to call the shots when no one else is watching. So they exchange the grace of God into moral abandon and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So this is the crux of their issue. They're exchanging the grace of God, and in particular, the reason why they're doing it is because they have denied Jesus as their Master and Lord, meaning our Creator, God. We throw off the shackles of having God. We deny Him as the Creator, and therefore we are the creation, and therefore we need to follow what He has told us to do. We no longer call ourselves a servant or a doulos, a slave, but we want to be the ones calling the shots. It is a desire that has plagued humanity since the beginning. The people who are creeping in know this. They know that you have a battle inside your own heart and they want to twist that battle so that you would deny your maker and follow your own sensuality. There is a war going on. Last Sunday was the 77th anniversary of D-Day. And I'm going to read 
Dwight Eisenhower's, President Eisenhower's letter to the soldiers before they invaded. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade, toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine. The elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1941 and 40. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. There is an enemy that wants to infiltrate the church. They want to infiltrate the church and twist Scripture to divide the church and make us ineffective in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a call to arms. You have been called. You have been summoned. You have been commissioned to fight the good fight. Our enemy is well trained. Our enemy knows how to deliver fatal blows. But God has already become victorious. victorious. God has already delivered the victory. All we have to do is Dear Lord, we thank You. We thank You that although we are rebellious, that we have created offenses, You have shown mercy on us. You have compassion toward us, the offenders. And You have loved us with a great love. We are objects of Your love forever. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us to walk in that love. To fight the good fight. To strive for the truth of Your Gospel. That You have created us. And because You have created us, You've created us with certain boundaries that make us flourish. And we pray that You would help us to spread the Gospel of Your grace to this world. In Your name we pray. Amen.